This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Sunday begins um, the Operation Christmas Child season for us as a church. There is a display out here in the main foyer. I really encourage you to go check it out after the service before you leave, even if you typically come in and out this side, go over here first. And then if it makes you feel better, you can walk back through here and exit out this side um, to go to your car. But check that out. Um, You'll be hearing more and more about this um, in the weeks coming, but we're going to come together at one time uh, on one evening and pack all of these boxes, 250, I think, um, as a church. Um, this is an incredible ministry that Samaritan's Purse does every year, and the, the fruit that God has uh, borne out of this over the last years, um, decades that they've been doing it, uh, really is untold. Uh, the children's lives who whose trajectory has been changed forever, as well as families, the fabric of community. Um, Samaritan's Purse is committed to operating uh, in and through local communities with local people through the local churches, and that's one of the reasons that we partner with them. So stop by uh, the OCC table on your way out this morning um, before you leave, and it's going to be an exciting uh, next number of weeks as we engage in churches or engage in Operation Christmas Child with churches from around uh, the country and around the world. This morning, Luke chapter 1, I invite you to turn there now. If you've got a Bible with you, um, you can open the app and uh, the notes as they are this morning will be there. You'll notice there are not going to be points for you to fill in little words. I really struggled with that because the preacher in me knows that it is true that you um, should not take mostly narrative and poetic passages and turn them into uh, organized, structured points from modernity. That's not how they were written to be received, but sometimes I'll still give into that. And every once in a while, they kind of lend themselves to that somewhat naturally. But this morning, we're going to walk through the flow of the birth of John the Baptist, um, as Luke intended, letting it wash over us by the power of the Spirit. What you'll find as we get to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57 is both a a birth scene and a birth song. A birth scene followed by a birth song. And we know that there are few times um, in the sort of human condition that are more exciting, more anticipatory, more, um, in a sense, magical than when we're um, just right at the end waiting on a new baby to be born. Whether that's uh, a child, a grandchild, I remember... Uh, where all three of ours were born, which for some reason, now that I say it, doesn't seem like much of an accomplishment to remember where your children were born. But I do nonetheless. Um, JC, I was a rookie. She came first. I didn't know what to expect. I thought we'd be in and out and have this thing done in no time. After all, there had been a nine-month practice. And so uh, I didn't pack any clothes or anything. We just went in. Um, Sharon was induced uh, on an evening, maybe a Tuesday evening or something like that. And I thought, induced by seven, we'll be out of here in no time. So I did bring back in that day a VCR tape with, uh, with Magnum PI reruns recorded all the way through it. And so as we were in a room, I had that playing on TV, just kind of chilling, 
uh, waiting for nature to take its course, and the baby, too, with gratitude and joy, come out uh, and honor us as her parents. That's not how it went. Uh, we left the hospital five days later, so I had to get some things brought. What, what we thought would be a fairly reasonable, normal birth turned into uh, a C-section and a good bit of recovery. Um, Cade was born across the state of Texas um, in North Dallas after we relocated there. We'd been there about a month, about a month, and Cade was born. And then Karis was born um, in Southern California. So those are exciting times. And those of you who are, are new enough parents to remember your own children being born and how exciting the specifics around that time were, some of you are grandparents and, and you feel the same amount of excitement, maybe more, since you're not going to have to care for it, um, around grandchildren being born. Well, this has always been so across all societies, and we'll see it be so in the birth scene this morning. Let's read um, starting out verses 57 through 66 that cover the birth scene of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Remember, she was, she was great in age and barren. The old King James says, stricken with age. Uh, some of us, as we're aging, can understand that to be a valid translation. 59, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. We, we see in this, in Zechariah and Elizabeth's day, some of the same things that happen in our day. Uh, do any of you remember uh, the enthusiasm and perceived business of those around you regarding the name of your child during a pregnancy? Everyone wants to know, do you know if it's a boy or a girl? What are you going to name it? Sharon and I chose not to share the names of our children until after they were born. We didn't want to hear any foolishness from people, including, and then maybe especially, our families. Um, I can still remember writing Cade's name on a little piece of paper and sticking it up to the glass um, in the delivery room of that North Dallas hospital when he was born because our parents were out there dying to know what the name of this little boy was going to be. What's funny here is we have this crowd often uh, just described as they, and they feel like much that's happening in Elizabeth and Zachariah's home is their business. They includes, if you look at verse 58, neighbors and relatives. Neighbors and relatives. They come together on the eighth day to circumcise the child. This is celebratory. This is a community um, that is in gladness at this time. And they feel like it's their business 
to suggest that he should be called Zechariah in verse 59. They would have called him Zechariah, the text says. There was this strong urge, firstborn finally of this older couple from the priestly line. Zechariah would take his father's name. He'd be little Z, I guess, um, Z2. But Elizabeth says no. Now, it is just my feeling that she who carries the child for nine months with the child doing all of the odd things that the child does, having trouble sleeping, eating for two, sometimes not eating at all, having odd cravings for pickled olives and who knows what the cravings Elizabeth would have had were, should have probably the ultimate say in naming the child. But they are not satisfied with that. And you can just see Elizabeth looking out and some lady sitting on the front row and she's kind of like, when she says he'll be called John and she says, well, none of your relatives is called by this name. Like, maybe she didn't know that. And then they're like, you know what, let's just, let's turn to dad. Dad will straighten this out. Maybe she's emotional. She's just given birth, not thinking straight. So they made signs to the father. There is a biblical hints here, as we've said before, that Zechariah may have not only been mute at this time, but also deaf, as he makes signs to people, and people make signs to him instead of just talking to him. He says, bring me my writing tablet, which in the first century would have been a, a flat, smooth piece of wood with a, a wax covering on it, and there would have been a writing utensil and whoever could write, and not many people could write, but Zechariah was a trained priest, and he knew how to both read and write, would take that uh, sharp writing utensil and would carve the letters out of the wax, just leaving the background of the wood behind it, and would then make letters and words and sentences then for others to read. And he writes down quite emphatically, his name is John. His name is John. It is a declarative statement where finally the heart and the mind of Zechariah have aligned with Gabriel and what Gabriel said. And behind his name is John is this strong sense of it is not up to the crowd, nor was it left up to Elizabeth and I. His name is John. The one who has given us him has named him. And they all wondered. And immediately... Immediately, his mouth was open. The immediate blessing and mercy and grace of God flows on to, to uh, Zechariah in the moment of his obedience. His tongue is loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now, we don't know whether it was exciting to Elizabeth or not exciting that Zechariah's mouth was loosed. And now he can speak. And he chooses, as he is able to speak now, to praise God, to bless God. That might not have been the initial response of all of us. It might have been like, man, I can now, what was the problem with that angel? That dude had an attitude. All I said was, how can this take place? And bam, nine months, I don't get to speak. But he doesn't do that. He blesses God, I wonder if we would have. 
And this causes fear on the neighbors. And, and all these things are talked about on the sidewalks, the streets, the alleyways. In the hill country of Judea. Have you heard about what happened to Zechariah and Elizabeth? You know, Zach can talk now. We think we liked it better maybe when he couldn't. You know, they've lost their minds. They gave their kid a name that wasn't even a family name. Verse 66, and all who heard them or laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? The hand of the Lord was with him. There's a, a sense of wondrous anticipation and curiosity about what God will do with this child. And then in verse 67, we begin the birth song. We begin the birth song that really has two verses. 68 through 75 constitutes one verse of this song. And verses 76 through 79 constitute the second verse of this song. Let's look at this, and we will read through this once and then come back and work our way through it. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Before we work through these verses, I, I might just suggest to you, commentators note that um, there may be very natural reasons why John was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. It's very likely given um, the advanced ages of Elizabeth and Zechariah, that John was orphaned at a somewhat early age. Yet the Spirit of God and the presence of God was with him as he continued to grow into uh, the person and the calling that God had for him. Now, verse 67 is the key to everything that follows. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. I'm not going to say a lot about this because we covered it a couple of weeks ago, but this is uh, that picture again of the people of God bringing a word from the Lord as they are empowered by 
the Spirit of God so that their words coming from human mouths actually by the uh, inhabitation of God's Spirit become God's words to God's people. Look at verse 68. It's an interesting verse. Blessed or blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah opens here with praise, with adoration that is grounded in an explanation. Adoration that is grounded in an explanation. He says, you are blessed, Lord God of Israel, for you visited us and you have redeemed us. Worship of God, true worship of God is always grounded and rooted deeply in the mighty deeds of God. The truth of God is the foundation. The truth of God is the foundation of all acceptable praise. This is why what we sing matters. This is why we spend considerable time thinking about what we sing. The words, what is being communicated in the songs we sing, where they are grounded in biblical truth and theological truth. I heard an interesting story that Alistair Begg told um, a great Scottish-American preacher from Parkside Church in Cleveland about having uh, been called to preach somewhere else for a weekend a few years back. He didn't specify whether it was a church or a, a conference or a convention or whatever. But he said this, called away last weekend, I was subjected to singing and singing and singing about how I was feeling when it was remotely not like how I was feeling at all. I was feeling bad to start, worse after about the first time, uh, the third time we'd sung this kind of thing, and totally depressed by the time we got to the fifth attempt. Singing, I just want to praise you, lift my hands and say I love you, when the truth of the matter is, I don't even want to be here. Now, you can appreciate the honesty, and, and it wouldn't matter what songs we chose. All of us, if we're honest in our spirits, are going to be, at times, singing words that are theologically true, but not in line with how we're feeling in a given moment. But it is important that they be grounded theologically and not just emotive. Not just based in feeling, which I think is what fired Beg up about some of the particular songs that they were singing. And some of you, honestly, uh, this will always be true of us, but some of us were up way too, light, uh, too late last night, and you're already gone this morning, right? You're sitting here physically, but your brain has shut down. Once it figured out that you were seated, it turned off. And the truth is, on mornings like this, you don't need shallow words to lift you up. You and I need theological truths to wake us up. Theological truths that are pregnant by, with God's Spirit. And they hit our ears and go through our minds down into our hearts and souls and give birth to a work of God in our lives. Because it is the Spirit of God that takes the truth of God in the Word of God and drives it home to the people of God, through the Son of God, to the glory of God. And that, church, is what energizes true believers 
as we worship. That is what is behind songs like this, that when I think, when I think that God, His Son not sparing, when I think about Him sending Him to die, I scarce can take it in that on that cross my burdens gladly bearing. He bled and died to take my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Verse 68, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Worship is to the Lord. Praise is to the Lord. For he has acted. He has visited us. He has redeemed us. And this word redeemed here is only used three times. The Greek word here that we translate redeemed in all of the New Testament. And it is used to specifically designate someone that has been set free through the payment of a ransom. Someone who has been set free through the payment of a ransom. It doesn't take a genius to understand what God is saying to us here through the lips of Zechariah. And the meaning here, though as we flesh out the next few verses, looks like it's political and earthly, it is spiritual and eternal. That is what God would have us hear, that it's a spiritual meaning, not a political one. No question it has political overtones. The gospel, part of what's happened that's gone so wrong in our nation is that we have forgotten, not, not actually we've forgotten, we have, been, uh, we have allowed ourselves to have it relegated to the interior life of personal uh, devotion or belief because we have not been theologically formed as we should have been. But the gospel is certainly a message with profound political implications. Jesus was not crucified because he was advocating some type of, of personal, private devotion. He was crucified because of the political implications of the message of the kingdom of God that you and I follow supremely and first. God, Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord of all. He's redeemed his people. Look at verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is just a picture. It's a metaphor for strength and power. Animals with horns, their horns are the symbols of their power. Of their power. And what Zechariah is saying here is that the symbol of the redemptive power of God is represented in the Messiah, is represented in the Messiah. In the house of his servant David, he's not talking about John the Baptist coming. John wasn't from the house of David. Jesus, who is yet to be born, is from the house of David. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. What, 
what Zechariah is saying here is that this God that is speaking now through him and is doing these great things in his day, exercising fulfillment and faithfulness, is the same God who's been speaking through his people throughout all of world history. It's funny when you look, when you look at a verse like 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Again, Zechariah is speaking in political and earthly pictures and metaphors. But we're to be reminded that the principalities and powers that ultimately war against us, whatever political or earthly form they may or may not take, are the principalities and powers of darkness that line up and unleash adversity against all who claim the name of Christ. We're engaged in a cosmic battle that Christ has already won, but is still being played out. And in the season when we're being bombarded with political ad campaigns and slogans and signs and rhetoric, when we, when we are the, the object of alarmists and pundits, we need to be reminded that the concern of God, the focus of God, from all time has been to redeem a people for himself who will inhabit the new heaven and new earth as through Christ he makes all things new. Too often we hear salvation from our enemies. Republicans hear it as a democratic message. Democrats hear it as a republican message. Communists hear it as a capitalist message. Capitalists hear it as a communist message. Westerners hear it as an Eastern message. Easterners hear it as a Western message. But that's not what God would have us hear. Zechariah is grounding what he's saying here in the faithfulness of the covenant God who has honored his covenant with Abraham and stood by his unfailing love toward his people. Verse 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Um, and I would just have you grab hold of, again, the, the fact that when Scripture talks about God remembering something, it's not that it had rattled to the back of his divine mind and now had somehow fallen back to the front. When God remembers, God is getting ready to act or God is in the process of acting to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we might be delivered from the hand of our enemies. Part of the confusion in the day in which John the Baptist was born was that the people of God had long since stopped understanding the truth of this message and had begun to understand it simply as an earthly and political message. When will you liberate us politically? When will you establish our kingdom on earth with us as the ruling nation over all others? And it was not to be that way. It was not to be that way. What's interesting here is we have the, the question, 
Why, why, answered for us, why does God do all this? Why is God um, granting us victory over our enemies? Why is God fulfilling his promises and remembering his holy covenant? Verse 74, the last half tells us that we might serve him without fear. Can I tell you, a redeemed people are a serving people who serve God by serving one another and God's world without fear that you might know God as Redeemer and Savior and the lover of your soul in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. All our days. Now, 76 through the end of the chapter here, comprise the second verse of Zechariah's song. And there's so much density and beauty and power here. Let's look at it, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. There's a statement of identity and activity here. You could almost see Zechariah now able to speak again, now having given an obedient defense to the relative's and community that his name is John going gently and quietly over to Elizabeth and the ladies who would have gathered having cleaned and wrapped up John after his circumcision on the eighth day and lifting up his little son in his hands and saying you child will be called the prophet of the most high this statement of identity the statement of identity. This is who you will be. For you will go before the Lord to prepare a way. This activity is why you have this identity. John is the forerunner making way for Jesus. Now, this is common language and would have been common language in that day. Isaiah 40 Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, say, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this would have, uh, would have been very common practice in Isaiah's day. And those in Zechariah's day, many would have seen the visual illusion and metaphor that they had seen happen in their lives that, that Isaiah, through the power of God, was bringing into a spiritual reality. It was commonplace in their day to construct what was known as a processional highway, almost like when the president comes in and, and you decide the route that his presidential convoy is going to take and it's all shut down, it's designated just for him. It just wasn't that simple in their day. They would designate some highway that already existed or some place to build a new highway as a processional highway for a, a visiting uh, civic dignitary or someone of great stature 
from another nation or their own, or maybe uh, for the, the bringing in and constituting of a new God in a temple or a shrine. And they would designate the whole section of an existing highway, or as I said, create an entirely new one and designate it the way of the one who was to come. We do this backwards sometimes. After you've been president, you're ultimately going to get a boulevard, a parkway, something like that named after you. Every city has an MLK. Right? This is the idea. But there was one person ultimately that was commissioned with going and traveling that course before the dignitary came and making sure the pathway was straight and level. You don't want their chariots all bogged down in mud. You don't want them getting flat tires. It's not true. They didn't have rubber tires then, but right? And this is familiar language, but they're saying John the Baptist is that one for the one who is to come. And he makes the way straight by declaring to the people their sins and their need for forgiveness. You get a little idea of this in Luke chapter 3. We'll cover this uh, in coming weeks, but Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, says, He that is John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah chapter 40, where we just read from. In verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Now imagine how this would go over at one of our baptism celebrations. You brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. You see, John knew that they were in significant danger living in the cultural and political confusion that they were, expecting a Messiah to come and to set up a political kingdom that they had grown more and more and more unaware of their own sin and their own guilt before God. Can I tell you that some of you, that's your very state this morning. In all the distraction and all the entertainment and all the church going, in all the thin church culture that still exists around us, you long ago lost sight of the depth of your own guilt and your own sin before God. Now look at verse 77. He's the prophet of the Most High who will go before the Lord to prepare his ways in order to give knowledge of salvation to his people. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. Now, this is, this is not the, the kind of knowledge that is a, a mere mental awareness or mental assent of something. My brain is jumping to math, but it's not getting there correctly, like pi equals r squared or something like that. I don't know. My wife would know, and my kids would probably know, and most of you will know, but I'm not into the math thing. So, it is not that kind of knowledge. It is not something that you just uh, bring in and understand to be factual. He's talking about a knowledge of actual possession or experience. Possession or experience. And how do we get this kind of knowledge? Look in the second half of the verse. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. It is through the forgiveness of your sins that a biblical knowledge of salvation comes to you. Where it is not something that you know about, but something you know personally. You've experienced it. 
You don't just know of it. You know the forgiveness of God and his salvation intimately. You know it intimately. It's the picture of Lydia in Acts 6 who was a a worshiper of God. She had a, a mental awareness of things, but it was only when the Lord opened her heart that what had been mental ascent became personal faith, saving faith. And I just, I want to pause here and make a word of challenge to you sitting in here or watching online, regardless of age, regardless of how long you've been attending this church or church in general. There's a real danger that you and I substitute knowing about forgiveness with knowing the salvation that's come into our own lives through the forgiveness of our sin. Through the forgiveness of our sins, the remission of our sins is an objective act of God where He forgives you that results in subjective knowledge, a knowledge of having been redeemed. And you don't get this knowledge of salvation without the forgiveness of sins. This is why we've got so many religious people, so many good people, right? I mean, people who give to charities, who, who donate blood, who recycle, who sit in church week in and week out, but, but why we also have so little spiritual power and unity and joy and life in our churches. Because many are filled with quite a number of people who have been brought into even the membership of the church who have never had their sins forgiven. They have no real knowledge of the salvation of the Lord. Let me paint a picture for you um, of this from Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his neighbor say, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you you know this this morning? Do you know God this way? That your sin has been forgiven and he remembers it no more? Can can you imagine a house where your spouse remembers your sin no more? Kids, can can, can you imagine a home where your parents remember your sin no more? Parents, can you remember, can you imagine a house where your children remember your sins no more. This is not how we operate, but this is how God operates. Psalm 103, 12, God says he'll separate our sin as far as the east is from the west. That's an infinite, eternal separation. Micah 7, 17, he says he will tread it underfoot and cast it into the deepest depths of the ocean so that your guilt before him may never be recovered. 
It will never show its face again. Isaiah 43, God says he blots it out and remembers it no more. This is the experience of the forgiveness of sins that leads to the knowledge of salvation that we see in verse 77. Do you know it? Do you know that kind of forgiveness? Have you ever had your sins forgiven? And I don't mean um, the kind of ongoing repentance that we need because we sin continually. I'm talking about having the kind of personal knowledge born of personal experience with God himself where you know that your nature as a sinner has been remembered no more. Do you have that type of assurance that God has said, I will remember it no more. God forgives and he wipes the record clean. How does he do this? He does this in the cross. He does this in the cross because Jesus bore our sins on himself. Your guilt and my guilt, the weight of eternal punishment poured out on the Son so that his obedience might be your obedience. His righteousness might be your righteousness. Forgiven through faith in that act. I'm talking about that one time when you realize that everything in you was wrong and rebellious toward God. Not just the stuff you did. And unfixable through your own power. And you threw yourself on God in repentance. And pleaded with him to forgive you in Jesus Christ. Forgive you an estranged and rebellious sinner. And he did. In the mercy and grace of Christ. He stomped that nature to death. And threw it into the depths of the ocean. Separating it from you as far as the east is from the west. There's not even a way for a human mind to comprehend how far your guilty nature has gone. It has been put to death. Why? Verse 78 says, because of the tender mercy of our God. You, you couldn't earn it. You have not done enough good and you could not do enough good. It is because of the mercy and tenderness of God. Do you see Him that way this morning? Do you know God as a tender and merciful Father? Or is He more of an angry taskmaster? Verse 78 says more though. It says that in the coming of Christ a great light shined into the darkness and into the death of the human condition. Verse 78, whereby, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. As Zechariah writes that, he's reaching back into Old Testament passages. We don't have time to read them this morning, but you can look at them yourself in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, Isaiah 9. Well, let's do Isaiah 9 real quick. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 3. 
But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Nebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the soil. Zechariah is bringing the richness of the Old Testament record to bear right now, saying, in Christ, light has come. Maybe some of you this morning, your world is dark. Maybe no one even knows that or certainly knows how dark it is. Hear God say that a light has shined into the darkness. The wise man came out of the darkness and said, we've seen a star in the east and we've come searching for him to worship him. And this morning, wise men and wise women and wise teenagers still search for him to worship him. The Bible tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And if that's what you're saying, or that's what people in our culture are saying, in the words of one great pastor, the Bible says not that you're mentally deficient, but that you're morally stupid. And honestly, is there... Is there a better description of those living in our day and our culture than verse 79? He's come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's where we live. Despite all the distraction and promises provided by social media and technology and entertainment, um, and abundance and politicians, we sit in the land of darkness and in the shadow of death. And beneath all the busyness and beneath all the smiles and beneath all the social media filters, beneath it all, at least in people I get to meet and talk with personally, there is a deep sense of despair and futility. They're sitting in the darkness and in the shadow of death. And we, with John the Baptist, come to be heralds of light, heralds of forgiveness, to say to them, a light has come, hope has come, salvation has drawn near. Do you know it? Do you know it? Do you know him? Some of you in here absolutely don't. And I'm praying that God's Spirit makes that abundantly, inescapably true to you in a way that leads you to throw yourself on Him in repentance, receiving new life. Looking at the news is depressing, is it not? A couple of stories over the past few months have caught my attention as it comes to this, this idea of sitting 
in the darkness and in the shadow of death. In July, in Danbury, Connecticut, a mom killed her three children in their apartment and then herself. She killed the children by strangulation. Listen to their ages as you think about that. She killed her 12-year-old, Junior. She killed her 10-year-old, Jocelyn. She killed her 5-year-old, Jonelle. Killing someone by strangulation is not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of strength and it takes time. It's an incredibly unpleasant way to die. Each of these children knew what their mom was doing as she did it. That was just in July, friends. Last month in August, a month ago, I guess now that we're in October, in August, domestic incident in Oklahoma City led a father to shoot his three young children to death before taking his own life. Days before this took place, the children's mother had left their father. He was only 30. And that precipitated this incident. He began live streaming on social media with a gun in his car, letting everyone know what he was about to do. Relatives and friends saw it and called the police. By the time the police got to the park in the particular neighborhood he'd driven to, it was too late. He'd killed three-year-old Trinity, four-year-old Aliyah, six-year-old Kyron, and then himself. We are living. In the shadow of death, we are sitting in the deepest darkness. And the people around us desperately need, and the Lord would providentially have us stop playing games and decide whether we intend to follow him or not. Whether we intend to bow ourselves to his lordship and in his grace become heralds of light, bringing light into darkness. Do you know him this morning? Some of you in here absolutely don't. You know about him. You've been in church a long time. You can speak language. You've got several Bibles. But you've never had the kind of moment that Zechariah is talking about. Where praise and worship bursts from you because you've been redeemed. Because he paid the price to set you free from your own prison of shame and death and eternal destruction. My prayer for you this morning, if you don't know that, is if you would simply say yes to God. And if that's your cry this morning, or maybe you just don't know, I want to see you here after the service. I want to get to talk to you and walk with you. Maybe after that, maybe this morning you can sing with those of us who've been redeemed, I surrender all. But I'm going to tell you, as a word of prophetic warning, don't you stand and sing these words if you don't mean it. 
And I mean that mostly for those of us who have experienced that salvation, but who know we're living a long way from surrendering all to Jesus. You can hum it. You can whistle it. You can watch Tori and Jake sing it. Let's stand. As we hear Zechariah's prophetic word this morning, and I trust the Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do. If you are a baptized believer, signifying that you have indeed had this experience and been united to God and to the people of God, and you feel so led to step out while we sing, communion is here available for you. Make your way to one of the stations. Tear off or take, I guess, a piece of the bread. Dip it in the juice. Move off to the side. And thank God through communion that the body and blood you celebrate and remember as you do communion is the ransom that was paid for you. And hear the whisper of Christ. I'm coming again. I'm coming again. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit to break through our defenses. We need your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear God. In a culture that continues to go further and further and further from you. God, dotted with churches that seem to be more and more and more confused about what it means to be the church, what it means to be disciples of Christ who belong to you. God, you are a God of tender mercy. Save those who are lost in this room this morning. Revive those who need it. May they take communion, recommitting themselves to your lordship and to a grace-driven pursuit of you. I pray in Jesus' holy sufficient and powerful name. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.